And we are going to be uh, continuing in our Nuts and Bolts series. Um, this morning, I've been looking at the different relationships that God has instituted for the good of society, for the good of the individual, for the good of the church, and ultimately for His glory. And so last time we looked at the church family, and today we're going to be talking about marriage. So I want to say it the Princess Bride way. So I guess it would be fair to say that marriage is what brings us together today. If you don't understand that movie quote, shame on you, right? It's Princess Bride, it's okay. Now I'm going to give you a quick pastoral general warning because I don't know why or how, but somehow the subject of marriage has become a controversial topic in our time. And, and so um, it's possible that today it's either somebody here or somebody watching or listening is going to be offended um, or angered by what I'm saying, and I want you to know that is not my goal. My goal is to accurately and passionately represent what God has laid out for us in His Word because it is the Christian standard for truth and for life. If you disregard God's Word, if you don't value what it says, you're left with popular opinion, and you're left with what's just accepted by the culture. Those are the standards. And those are terrible standards because they change continually. What was okay a month ago might not be okay today. And that's the way it works. So if that's your standard, you're going to have a difficult time. But, but knowing that doesn't change the pressure we feel as Christians sometimes to conform to those, those worldly ideas and standards. Because nobody wants to come across as unloving, narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, all those things that, that people get called. You don't want to be the odd person out. And so it's sometimes just easier to go along with the general consensus. And we're seeing many Christians do that right now. And this becomes even easier to do when you rely on your emotions, you know, as far as deciding what's right and wrong in, in this in regards to this topic, because the minute you, you, you attach a face or a name of somebody that you care about, you know, it, you, it just becomes very hard to be objective at that point. So each of us as a Christian has to determine the answer to the question that Paul posed for us in Galatians 1.11. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? This is critical. If you're seeking the approval of man, you're going to easily fall off the side to, you know, one side of the ditch and, and, and go along with what the world's doing. If you're seeking the approval of God, you can stand firm on what his word teaches. So as Christians, we just need to care more about what God has to say. And, and we do that by looking into his word, which we believe is authoritative. This means that we should willingly submit to what it teaches about marriage or any other topic. And I would, um, I would argue that in regard to marriage... God's design and desire could not be more clear. If you reject what God's word has to say, it isn't because it's not clear. It's because you don't like what it says. And I'm not surprised. I just want to say this. I'm not surprised when people of the world um, agree or don't agree, I'm sorry, with the Christian view of marriage. That doesn't surprise me. Um, but, but it does surprise me when followers of Christ, Christians don't. And I think that's you know, non-Christians don't see the Bible as relevant. They don't see it as authoritative. So it makes perfect sense for them to reject what it says. That's actually consistent with their worldview. It's logical that they would do that. But, but then you would hope that it wouldn't surprise them when we do the same thing. <laughs> if we're followers of Christ, we, we would probably, you know, we shouldn't be weirded out at all if, if we're actually following him. And, and that's consistent with our worldview. Somehow in, in our world today, we've lost the art of disagreement. 
I don't know why or how it's happened, but it has. If someone doesn't see things our way, we immediately want to hate them or call them names or things like that. We can't control how somebody responds to us in this regard, but we certainly can control the way we respond to them. And if you need a guide on how to do this right, we have one. His name is Jesus. I think about how Jesus responded. You know, he, he spent time with sinners. He spent time with people that, that were doing things that God's word didn't agree with. But how did he treat them? He showed them compassion. He treated them with dignity, with respect, with kindness. And yet, he unapolog- un- unapologetically told them the truth because he loved them, not because he hated them. And that's our guide. We can disagree with somebody's beliefs and their lifestyle and tr- still treat that person as somebody who has value, who's been made in the image of God. Treat them with kindness and dignity and, and, and th- those types of things. And, and Christians don't always do this well. If there's somebody that doesn't agree with God's word or agree with our way of thinking, w- we tend to isolate them or cancel them. We can't do that. God didn't do that with us, <laughs> praise God. We can't do it with them. Now, it would be fantastic if if the other side did the same for us, but don't expect it. They probably won't. They'll probably get mad at us, and they'll probably not agree with us. So as we get into this, if you find yourself disagreeing with the biblical worldview of marriage, I would encourage you to listen anyway. You may not come away agreeing, but you might gain some understanding as to why Christians hold the views that they hold. Um, I find that it's it's helpful when I I can do this. Um, Usually, one of two important things happen when, I, when I'm challenged in my viewpoint or when I, when I hear somebody else's viewpoint. Um, it, it, it gives me a sympathy. It gives me kind of an understanding with the person. I may not agree with them, but at least I, I, it kind of humanizes it. It's not just as theoretical or hypothetical at that point. And so once I can sympathize, you know, I can be charitable. The other thing it does is it, it, it helps me to, to rethink my own view. Is my view biblical? Is it true? Or, or do I need to adjust my view? Um, if, if it's God's word, it's obviously true. But sometimes, you know, truth can be scrutinized. It's okay to do that. It'll hold up to truth. You hold up the scrutiny. So here's the question. How does God define marriage in the Bible? The first thing we clearly see in God's word by looking at the creation account is this. God made men and women with distinctness on purpose. Okay. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created two distinct genders. I don't know why that's controversial, but, but it is. This is not something to be denied or erased or improved upon. It's something to be celebrated. We shouldn't be ashamed of God's word. We can be confident in what it says, and we can celebrate because what did God say about this design in creation? He said it's very good, very good. If he thinks it's very good, we can agree with that. It's very good. There's this pressure that, that, that from society, though, to, to think differently about this. One of the things we're seeing right now is we're seeing um, pressure for men to stop being masculine. I especially see this having an effect on younger men who are now afraid of being seen as toxic or as part of the problem. And if you bought into the teaching of critical race theory, I'm not going to get into that today, but, but you've been taught that being a man is the worst thing you can possibly be. You're at, the, you're at the top of the oppressor food chain if you're a man. So it's, it's easy to understand if you believe that or have been taught that, why young men would, would want to kind of distance themselves from that and say, well, I better, I better not be that way. Uh, I better be something different because they want to survive socially, right? Now, I agree that there is a version of men that needs to be 
changed, right? We don't, toxic masculinity or male chauvinism, we know those things aren't right, but it's also not right to swing the pendulum to the, to the other extreme and become something that isn't masculine at all. It doesn't honor God. So I want you to know that it's possible to be a godly, masculine man. I know lots of them, right? And this, by the way, I know some of you guys are wondering about this. This doesn't mean that you never cry because I know some of you guys do that. <laughs> you can still be a masculine, godly man and cry every once in a while. I'm talking about myself if you're new here. It's, it's the inside joke. So it's okay to be masculine. There's also pressure from society for women to stop being feminine and to be like men. And to that, I would just, as nicely as I possibly can say, gross. <laughs> don't, don't do that. I don't understand why a woman would want to be like a man when God has created them in such an amazingly beautiful way. Uh, my wife is beautiful. She's feminine. She's smart. She's capable. She's strong. She's even, a, she's even a bit of a tomboy, which I think is great. She likes to mow the lawn, get her hands dirty. She can fix things. That's fantastic. But the very last thing I want her to be is manly. <laughs> Just not at all. Femininity is so incredibly wonderful. It's beautiful. Don't erase it. Embrace it. Celebrate it. It's good. So men and women, when, that was a tough one. Men and women are different by design, and that's a glorious thing. When we accept that truth, we can then see and embrace the fact that we are wired differently, that we have different God-given roles that don't compete with each other, but actually complement each other. And this brings us to the second observation that we read in the creation account. In Genesis 2.18, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. God is Trinitarian. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has never been alone. He knows, he knows what the importance of this. And He's created us in the same way so that we would never be alone. In His wisdom, He created two distinct people, man and woman, and said that they would function better by being together as one flesh or one entity. Now, I'll admit, I don't understand the Trinity exactly, but I know that it's made up of three distinct people that make up one glorious God. And... and, and Somehow that, that's, you know, it's better. Man and woman becoming one is part of God's good design. He knows that it works. And they're a natural match. We fill in often what the other person is lacking in an amazing way. I'm a better man. I'm a better man because of my wife. Um, I wouldn't be the same guy I am today without her in my life. And this is, this is just the way it is. We have different physical abilities, right? I can kill spiders, for instance, <laughs> right? We have different ways of thinking about things, and I'm not going to say it's always the same, but I, I appreciate that she comes at something completely differently than I do, and it's very helpful. We have different emotional makeup. We have different logic, different relational abilities. We're well-suited for each other. Now, man wouldn't be the same without women, and women wouldn't be the same without man. This is why God said, it is good that the man should not be alone. And then he says this, I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I don't want to get too graphic on a Sunday morning, but this word fit definitely includes our physical bodies. It's obvious that men and women were made to go together, right? Science and biology agree with this. This doesn't even have to be a religious thing. It's just obvious. Even a good evolutionist, if they were consistent, would have to agree with this conclusion. Because do you know how many generations you get if you do it different than the way God designed? You get one, and then they go extinct. That's the end of the story, right? So, 
The reason that nothing else works is because it wasn't designed to. It's obviously the way God intended it to be. He knew what he was doing when he made you. I wish people got this. He knew what he was doing when he made you. He didn't get it wrong. It's, it's part of the result of the fall is that we don't want to, to, to do or to be what God intended. So it's, it's like God says, I want it this way. And you're like, oh yeah, watch this. I'll do it the other way. That's, that's what we do. God says, don't cross this line. And we think, it's all I can think about now. Thanks for pointing out the line. Now all I want to do with all my being is cross that line. That's, how, that's, that's what sin did. It broke things. And the truth is there's something very appealing to our sinful nature about doing what's forbidden. In our rebellious hearts, you know, we, if God wants it this way, well, then, then I'm doing it the other way. And that's because we believe the lie that Satan presented in the garden, that God's way isn't the right way and that we're missing out on something better. The enemy wants you to believe that you're missing out on your true, authentic self. And the only way that you'll be complete is to finally discover that. And that's a lie. How did that work out for Adam and Eve? They, they bought that lie and, and it destroyed things. And it's a great lie, by the way, because none of us feel right in this world. I don't, I don't know if, especially young people. Do you remember what it was like to be young and like junior high and high school? I mean, you don't, nothing, nothing feels right. Your body feels weird. Your, everything is like, you just don't feel like you fit in. And if I'm being honest, I still don't feel like I really fit into this world today. So it's a great lie. Going the, uh, the opposite way of God, though, it's not going to lead you to completeness. It's not going to fulfill anything. It's going to lead you to a path of dissatisfaction, disappointment, and ultimately destruction because you're going against God's good blueprint and design for, for his creation. He wants us to find joy and satisfaction in life and doing things his way and by being loved by him. And it takes faith to submit to that plan. It, it, it takes faith to trust that that's what's best for us. And by the way, um, his best hasn't changed. It was very good at creation. Guess what? It's still very good today. And there's this, pe people try to do this too and say, well, that was fine for back then, but everything's changed now. Culture's changed. We're more enlightened. We have a better understanding. Even Jesus didn't talk about these things in the New Testament, so we don't have to pay attention to them. Yeah, he talked about them. That's not true. <laughs> if you've heard that, it's ridiculous. Jesus in Matthew 19, listen to what he says. It's going to sound pretty familiar. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, therefore, let not man separate. And then Paul reiterates God's good design and desire in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you guys know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, you know they, they, they got it messed up. 1 Corinthians, was they were so sexually immoral that the non-Christians were going, oh, that's not right. You know that it's bad when, when non-Christians are going, that's you know, pretty messed up. So Paul writes to them and he tells them how to fix it. He, said, he basically um, says it this way. Listen to God's remedy for sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's about as clear as it could be. That means that any sex that occurs that isn't between a husband and wife, the Bible calls sin. That includes living together, by the way. This is another one that you know, I see, again, the younger generations. We used to call it shacking up. We're seeing this all the time now where, where younger Christians are saying, oh, it's fine. The Bible doesn't talk about it. It does. You're, you're enjoying the benefits of marriage 
without actually being married. That doesn't honor God. It's funny how people want God's blessing on their life, but, but they're not willing to do the things he's laid out for that blessing. I don't, it, it's, just, it's frustrating sometimes, but that's the way we are. So we've talked about the things that are the basis for the Christian worldview on marriage. Um, one of the questions that often comes up, you guys have probably heard this, why do you care so much? Why do Christians care so much about what other people do and who they're with and what they do in the privacy of their own? You, right, you've heard these types of these arguments. Well, here's the first thing. It's not just the privacy of your own home anymore. Now people want us to um, accept it, affirm it, and, and actually even celebrate it. And, and, and we, don't, we don't have to do that as Christians. So the, the, the first answer as to why we care so much, I've already alluded to, and it's this. It's because it's a big deal to God, the one who instituted marriage. He deserves to be honored and respected. His design for marriage deserves to be honored and respected. And, you know, when you see like your master being attacked, I mean, even like a dog does something about it, right? And when I see God being attacked, when I see, you know, his good design being attacked, it, it does something to me. I care about it. So we don't hold this view because we hate people or because we just love to be narrow-minded and, and uh, you know, or, or because we want to be the morality police or because it, I think the, the view people have is that Christians just want to stomp out fun wherever they see it. It's like, is that fun over there? And they run over and just like, you know, stomp it out, knock that off, be miserable. That's not why we do this. We believe that it's what God's word teaches and we simply want to respect our creator and trust that he knows what's best for us since he's the one who made us. There's another reason why we care so much about marriage and I don't think it's one people consider enough. What is marriage a picture of in the Bible? Marriage is a picture of something other than just a man and a woman coming together. It's a picture of a savior and a church coming together. It's a picture of the gospel story. So in Ephesians 5, verse 31, this is what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Interesting. Part of what God had in mind when he created the gift of marriage was that it would point us to the even greater gift of salvation. So, so his plan of redemption also includes the idea that it's not good for man to be alone, but, but, but in, in regards to being apart from God. And so God started planning a wedding, right, to remedy this predicament. And it's, it, the gospel is, is a love story with a groom named Jesus and a bride called the church. And this is why, um, you know, this is really, it's wired into marriage. It, it's, it, it's, it's the basis of marriage. So to corrupt this or to, to change it or to, um, I mean, all of that just to make a mockery of it, it disrespects God. It disrespects the amazing story of, of the gospel. The weird thing to me is you would think that if a non-Christian understood what marriage was, that it's something God instituted and that it's all about kind of this redemption story, that they wouldn't want anything to do with it. I mean, just in fairness, it's like, I don't want, why would we want, and I, I think the same thing, we see it like with Christmas and with Easter, the same thing happens. Like, okay, we don't really want to celebrate the birth of Christ. We don't really want to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but we want to celebrate. So let's, let's make it about Santa and bunnies and, and things like that. And then, and then we'll, you know, we can still, it's that fear of missing out thing that people have. We don't want to miss out. So let's, let's just, you know, find a way to enjoy it ourselves. We'll kind of, um, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, pull it into our, to, to our worldview so that it works. Um, that's why it matters so much to us. That's why it's sacred to us. 
that it's a picture of the gospel. This same idea of Ephesians 5, by the way, plays into um, not just why marriage was instituted, but it gives us a pattern for us to follow in marriage. Uh, so we're going to shift gears a little bit here. And if you were thinking that we've moved past the controversial part, uh, you're not in luck. <laughs> we're, uh, what we're talking about today uh, in this passage also seems antiquated, and it also seems offensive to people. And so we've already determined that God created male and female to be distinctly different from each other, and he gave them different roles that would complement each other. God, according to his own purpose, determined that husbands would be the head of the marriage relationship. That's, that's clear in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5 lays all of this out clearly for us. And I used to jokingly say, hey, we're going to look at every woman's favorite verse in the Bible now. You know, wives submit to your husbands. Like, you guys all have that on your fridge at home. And, but but that, I, I shouldn't joke about it, though, because I know a lot of women who actually love this verse, that this verse has become a comfort to them. And, and they see God's good design in it as, as far as putting that responsibility on their husband and, and, and not them. So, so it's not something to joke about. It's actually glorious. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's, it's very interesting that a verse like this can be a comfort to one person and make another person want to punch somebody in the throat. You know, I don't know how that works, <laughs> but this is one of them. Um, so the question comes up, why would God design things this way? Is he just, is he just trying to keep women down? Is that, is that what this is about? I would just point out, look at any country that has outright rejected Christianity, outright rejected Christ, and, and look at the way the women are treated there. I, I would argue that Christianity has done more for women's rights, for the value of women, than anything else in the world ever. Jesus uh, was amazing. I'm sure it frustrated the Pharisees. The way he honored, valued, and treated women was amazing. Um, so this is not about keeping women in their place or demeaning them in any way. This is not teaching that it's okay for, for men to rule their wives with an iron fist. That's clear because of the command that's about to come to the men to love their wives. This is also not teaching that women are doormats or that they have to put up with violence or abuse. And, and I would just say, if you are in an abusive or unsafe situation, you need to come and talk to us about that today. That's not okay. It's never okay. And we, we want to we be there to help you if that's the case. This is not teaching that women are second rate or inferior. The Greek word submit just means to arrange under. That's what it literally means. It's making a conscious decision to yield to somebody else. And by the way, we do this all the time. And we don't think it's a big deal, right? We, we do it in relationships, like family relationships, we do it. We do it in conversations. There's times somebody's talking and you go, oh, I'll, just, I'll just wait till they're done. You arrange yourself under. We do, it, uh, we do it when we're driving our cars, right? Have you ever tried to get on the parkway when it's busy out and there's somebody in the lane and they don't get over? What do you do? You just, just ram them until they move over and say, I'll show them. No, you wait. You, you arrange yourself behind them or you cause a crash. This is the same thing in marriage you're headed for disaster if you don't do something to yield. So this is like tapping the brakes, right? You got a situation going on, tap the brakes, tap the brakes, tap the brakes. That's what it means. Now, that, this doesn't come naturally to us. Our desire is to ram people, to, to drive them off the road. At least that's mine. I don't want to submit. I want, I want my way. But God is, is, I love that God is a God of order. He, he is a God who, He's not chaotic. He's laid out like this organizational flow chart for us. And that's super important. I don't know if you've ever worked for a company that had multiple bosses. <laughs> it's the, one of the most frustrating things in the world. Who, do you, who, who knows the right answer? Who's in charge? 
It drives you crazy to be in that kind of a, a situation. And I heard somebody one time say that a two-headed marriage is a monster. Right? You're going to destroy each other. Somebody has to be in charge. You can't both be in charge and expect it to work. It, it doesn't work that way. So the hierarchy that God has instituted is, is explained even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of woman is man, and that the head of Christ is God. So you have God at the top. Jesus has arranged himself under God. The husband has arranged himself under Jesus and the wife under the husband. And it's helpful to see this progression because even though Jesus is subject to the Father, is he less than the Father? No. Is he inferior to the Father in any way? No, he's not. And so likewise, even though the wife submits to her husband, it doesn't mean that she is inferior. You know, basically, um, it doesn't mean that men are superior. It doesn't mean that they're more valuable, better, smarter, even necessarily more capable. Uh, those things might be true in your marriage, but they might not be true, and it doesn't change a stinking thing. It doesn't change God's directive. Right? So this isn't about like, well, I'm better suited for this, so I guess I'll do this. No, this is the role that God has given to men. And men, you need to hear this. Some of you have figured out that it's easier just to abdicate this role and, and just maybe keep the peace or, or just let her do all the work. You know, Who wants to lead when she can do it? God has given you that role. When you stand before him someday and have to answer for it, I mean, think about that now. He's yeah. going to say, hey, how'd you do with my directive? Well, I, I didn't really feel like doing it. You're called to be the spiritual leader of your home. You need, to, you need to step up. You need to man up. You need to start doing what God has asked you to do. When it comes to the roles that, that God has given husbands and wives, I want to point out that they're not easy. I know that. They're not easy for any of us to do. Uh, it will most certainly be difficult for wives to do what God is asking them. But husbands, look what he's demanding of you. Okay, just a, just a small thing. Here it is in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. And you're thinking, okay, I can do that. I've done that. I think I bought her chocolates once. I, I told her I loved her when we got married and I haven't changed my mind. That was my father-in-law's big line. It, there's more than just that. So husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That changes everything, doesn't it? Right? How did Jesus show his love for his bride? He died for her. <laughs> now, like that's the ultimate sacrifice. And so I think we, we immediately as men think, okay, so if I'm in an alleyway and there's a fight and I, you know, a guy pulls out a knife, I'll stand in front of my wife and I'll, I'll be willing to die for her. That's great, you know, but that's not what it's talking about necessarily. It's talking about much more than that. It's talking about daily putting her needs before your own, daily dying to self. And, and, you know, this is what it means. That's much harder to do in the ordinary mundane circumstances of life. That's way harder. Verse 28 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. So making sure your, your wife's needs are met should be the same priority level as making sure your needs are met, men. And I don't want to brag, but I become pretty awesome at taking care of myself. I, I, uh, I, I can love myself. I can meet all of my needs. I can almost think about the things that I need before that, you know, I can anticipate all this stuff. I'm really good at it. I've got down to a science. I'm still working on doing that well for my wife. Um, but I know exactly what's expected. I mean, I know how to do it because I do it all the time for me. The Ephesians passage ends with the following summary. Let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we have love and respect. Uh, this, is such, this is almost like an endangered species in marriages today. You, you almost see these things just dying out. And I love this. Jesus has given both the husband an example 
and the wife an example to follow in himself. Isn't, this is amazing. I love that our Savior doesn't ask us to do things that he didn't do himself. So wives, he has shown you what it looks like to respectfully submit to your husbands in the way that he submits to the Father. You have a model. Husbands, he has shown you what it looks like to have sacrificial love for your wife by the way he loved the church and gave himself for her. You have a model. And when you learn to trust God and submit to his good design, you begin to see the wisdom in it. You begin to see that it actually works. And this shouldn't be surprising, but women respond very well to love. They like it, right? Men respond very well to respect. They like it. God knows this because he's the one who made us. So, so the key to this, though, is that we must decide that we're going to accept this role from God and do it as an act of worshipful obedience to him, regardless of what our spouse does. This is something we don't do well. It's like, okay, I'll love her as long as she respects me. But if she stops respecting me, cutting that love right off. And the wives do the same thing. Well, he doesn't love me, so I'm not going to respect that guy. That's not what God has asked us to do. He said, do this unto me, regardless of what they do. And, that, and, and again, Jesus models this for us. I don't know if you realize this, but why does Jesus love you? Is it because you're so awesome and you perform so well and you're so faithful to him and he's just like, oh, I'm so enamored at the way they... No, he does it to please the Father. And, and, and he won't give up. He remains faithful and committed regardless of what we do. He has every reason to divorce us every day and he doesn't. He has every reason to withhold his love from us every day and he doesn't. So we're going to dig into the practicalities of marriage more uh, in the next sermon, but for now I just want to say this. Husbands, commit to loving your wife unconditionally with no strings attached and watch what happens. And wives, commit to respecting your husband unconditionally with no strings attached. Work on building him up and watch what happens. I've been working on a project in the backyard and, and Joy walked up to me yesterday and said, I'm proud of you. You know what that does to a man? To hear his wife say she's proud of him? That's a little thing, right? And I know it's like sometimes she just says that and, you know, there's maybe not a huge reason to be, but I don't care. I'll take it, you know? It's good. All right, well, anytime the church gets together um, to talk about marriage, we tend to alienate or leave out two important parts of our family, and that's those who have been divorced and those who are single. And sometimes that describes the same person. So it, it can be hard for those people to know how to integrate into God's family. Um, the truth is, um, God would say this, it's not good for you to be alone either. And so he's provided the church as, it's not the same thing, but it's, but it's family. It's, 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 a, it's a relationship that you're a part of. And, and I just want you to know, um, you matter to us. Um, you're loved. You're an important part of our family. Divorce or singleness does not have to define who you are. Christ defines who you are. You're a Christian first. So regarding those who have been divorced, everybody's story is a little bit different, but it doesn't make the result any less awkward or painful. Some of you did everything you could to save your marriage and it failed anyway. And some of you might have been the cause for your marriage failing. Uh, regardless of what happened, what you have to be able to answer next is what now? Our God is a redeemer. Our God is the God who can take the worst of situations and make beautiful things out of them, right? Beauty from ashes. And so I want you to hear this. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If you've been a part of a divorce, these are the things I would encourage you to do. Confess whatever sin you committed in that divorce. Everybody has a part to play in these things. So a confession just means agreeing with God. I agree that what I did was wrong in this area. So confess, 
Ask God to forgive you. Make things as right as you possibly can with those who are affected by it, okay? Divorce affects a lot of things. So whatever that means, maybe you just need to go amend some fences or talk to some people. And then I would say seek reconciliation where it's possible. That might not mean you get to put your marriage back together. It might, might not be possible. It might mean you can. But, but seek reconciliation where it's possible. And after you've done all those things, receive the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. Let that wash over you. Because divorce feels like one of those things that doesn't end. It just kind of, it's always there. In Christ, you are a new creation. You can walk in newness of life. You can, you can actually just enjoy the forgiveness that is yours in Him. And you have permission to do that. He can make all things new. But, 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 please don't jump into another relationship too quickly. I, I, I feel funny saying this, but I can't tell you how many times we've, we've watched this happen. A marriage ends... And, and a couple months later, somebody's dating and, and thinking about, you know, the next thing. It's like, what are you doing? Um, it's okay to let some time go by. You know the stats about second marriages. They're not always good. But if you do, if and when the time is right to do that, let the people who know you the best and love you the most speak into that, including your pastors, hopefully. <laughs> Don't make a huge life decision without making sure it makes sense and that you're you know, God's blessing is upon that. I have seen God bless second marriages, you know, maybe third marriages. I don't know all, everybody's story, but I've seen, I've seen God bless these. I've seen redeemed marriages that are, that are just a, a wonderful thing to behold. God can do this for sure. Um, but I just want to point out that being single, it's not such a bad idea, according to Paul, right? We act like it's like they're, oh, they're single. Oh, they're cursed of God, huh? You know, no, not necessarily. What, what Paul said is, is that if you can learn to be single and content, you're, you're kind of crushing it. You're not divided by, you know, worldly things and you're, your interests aren't divided. Your devotion to the Lord is, is, is you know, kind of what it is. So, so we have a lot of singles in our church right now that are crushing it. And I would say keep up the good work. Uh, marriage, I don't want to say anything. You know, I love marriage. I love being married. It complicates stuff. It just complicates life in a lot of ways that you don't think it will, right? It's hard. Apart from God's grace, I think we'd all be doomed, but, but God is gracious, right? It can be extremely fulfilling when we do it the way we've talked about, the way God intended it. The problem is not very many people do, <laughs> right? If men don't accept the role that God has given them and women don't accept the role God has given them, marriage is really, really hard. When we both do those things, though, and, and, you know, again, sin has marred all of God's good creation and his plan. But when we put into place what God has given us, marriage is a wonderful thing and a blessed thing. But when you don't do that, and like I said, a lot of marriages don't, it, it's, it's, it's difficult. And this gets compounded even further if you don't have a realistic expectation of what marriage is, by the way. I can't tell you how many people get this wrong. Um, they think that it's going to be the answer for everything they've been looking for. So like everything that I've been lacking as an individual and everything that I've been dissatisfied in life, uh, that's Joy's job to fix, right? That's what we think. My wife's name is Joy. I don't know why. <laughs> Could be weird if you don't know that, I guess. Um, you know, when marriage involves two self-focused people who have come together with the assumption that the other person is going to make them happy and fill in all that they've been missing, it's most certainly doomed for failure. In that scenario, your happiness is the goal, right? 
if the other person isn't able to make you happy or keep you happy, what do you do? Well, you go find somebody that can, if that's the goal. Right? That's a terrible view of marriage. Do you know how much pressure that puts on the other person? <laughs> who, who, by the way, was never designed to be able to do that? I mean, I can't, make, I can't even fix myself. I'm supposed to like, fix all of her stuff too? I can't do that. And this is what the, the world has this idea of a soulmate. There's somebody out there that when I find them, all this, thing, all this is going to come together. Um, you know, the idea of a soulmate, I would say, is, is a complete mirage. You do have a soulmate, but it's not another person. It's a relationship with your Savior, right? If God did have this in mind, where he could, another human being was, was your soulmate, you know that he would be setting you up for sin? If that's where you were going to find your ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment, that would be idolatry, which isn't right. Do you think God would create something apart from himself for you to find your ultimate fulfillment in? No, that's where you got to find it. So if that's been your expectation or your goal in marriage, abandon it, confess it as sin, apologize to your partner for the ridiculous pressure you put on them to be like, you know, the the person that's going to fulfill you and all that kind of stuff. When when you start to look for that in God and God alone, it'll revolutionize your marriage. It'll change everything because now your partner is just somebody that enhances your life, that's a companion in life that you get to do this with, but you're not putting all that pressure on them to, to solve all your issues, that God is the one that does that. So lastly, here's in closing, why is it so important for Christian marriages to succeed? Um, I think in marriage, we just think it's about us and nobody else, and that's not true. Marriage is a picture of the gospel to the watching world. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, your marriage is a picture of the gospel to them. It's a picture of a relentless God who will not give up on their spouse. When your marriage fails, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your kids, your family, your friends, your church, and your testimony. There's a lot at stake here. And so this means if your marriage is in jeopardy right now, get help. There's no shame in that. I don't know why we, you know, we talk about how we're a family. Family, they share things with each other. When somebody's hurting or something's going on, you talk about it. It's just funny. The way marriage works is that you, you either have struggled, you are struggling, or you're going to struggle. Those are the three options I know of. So there's no shame in admitting, hey, we're struggling. And I would just encourage you, Get some, get some help. Talk to somebody about it. Because many of the marriages that we have witnessed fall apart here at the church, it all could have been prevented if, if it would have been worked on, if it would have been talked about. Half the time, people wait till they get to DEFCON 1, and then they come to us and say, hey, we, what do we do? <laughs> it's like, come to us two years ago would have been great. But, or they come to us after they've been divorced. Like, you know, how's your marriage going? Oh, we tapped out a couple months ago. And it's like, and you didn't even say, you know, it's okay to, to get help. I would encourage it. We have resources. We will meet with you. We will make it a priority because it really does matter. So next time we're going to get into more of the practicalities of how we do love and respect and how we, how we um, do husband and wife things together and so forth. But for now, I'm going I'm to wrap up there and uh, we're just going to close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the gift of marriage. Thank you that, it, that it's, it's far more about uh, a groom named Jesus and a, and a bride called the church that we get to witness this love affair that you have with, with the people that it doesn't even make sense that you would love or care for, and yet you do. And Father, I just pray that you would bless the marriages in this, in this church, that you would bless those who are, are single and uh, help them to be content in you. Uh, if you do have something for them in the future, help them to wait on you and trust in that. Um, Lord, you're just so good to us in so many ways, and we just ask for um, uh, just a strong testimony of what marriage is supposed to be in the lives of the people in this building now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.